The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. The, the product launch. I mean, product launches are make or break moments. The expectations are incredibly high. And when things don't happen as you expect them to, things can go sideways very quickly. Now, sometimes I think that there's a bit of this dynamic going on 2,000 years ago when it came to the events surrounding the very first Christmas and the events surrounding the earthly ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. The expectations were incredibly high. And when things didn't happen exactly as they were expected, things went sideways very quickly. And what makes it even more awkward is this. Jesus himself contributed to the unmet expectations. Now, please don't be offended by what I'm about to say to you, and please hear me out before you condemn me. But there's something that Jesus did that really used to bother me. And whenever Jesus did this, and he did it quite often, it would irritate me to no end. Every time he did it, it annoyed me, and it seriously confused me. Now, what am I talking about, you ask? Well, let me show you. The New Testament begins with some incredible events. We often call it the Christmas story. The Gospel of Luke begins in in the second chapter, first, second chapters, describing this Christmas story. Let's read together what uh, Luke writes. He said, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Folks, this is supernatural stuff happening here. This is big stuff. And they were terrified. Of course you'd be terrified. You're out in the dark around Bethlehem, and you can see how dark Bethlehem is if you come with me to Israel in March. It's still not too late. We'll be in Bethlehem in these fields. And you're out there, and it's dark, and all of a sudden you're a shepherd, and this glory, angels are appearing, and and the gleam of their, their glory and God's glory shining around you. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Okay, there's good news that's going to bring great joy. This is good stuff. This is great stuff. What's the good news, angel? Today, in the town of David, that's the term for Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Folks, this was a big deal. Something huge was happening In fact, it was so huge, a special constellation had been in the sky for quite a while. A constellation that was so obvious, so different, so unique, that some astrologers to the east in Babylon noticed it and followed it to all the way to Jerusalem because they recognized this constellation. Its symbolism was that a a king, a, a messiah was going to be born in Jerusalem. This was huge stuff. It was, it was stuff that the universe was declaring. Angels, stars, constellations, this was huge. I emphasize that because God goes to great lengths to introduce this little baby Jesus into the world, the long-awaited Messiah. 
And then that baby Jesus grows up and at the age of 30, so 30 years later after these huge events, Jesus finally begins his public ministry. And he begins it with some pretty high octane displays of power and authority. Now, as you can imagine, people took notice. Mark's gospel, right away he gets to it. He gets to the displays of the Messiah's power. Mark chapter 1, Mark records, Jesus went into the synagogue, that would be like the local church for a Jewish person in the first century, into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. So here's a guy who must have been displaying clearly some symptoms of satanic infiltration or torment, whether it be how he looked, how he talked, how he acted. It was clear to the crowd that there was something not quite right about this gentleman. And it says that he was possessed by an impure spirit, and so he cried out. This impure spirit cries out through him. So the voice probably would have been unique. And the spirit says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Darren, where are you going with this? I mean, you said that Jesus did something that annoyed you. Where do things start to get annoying? It's what happened next where my annoyance kicked in. God has gone to great lengths at the very first Christmas to announce the birth of Messiah, even going uh, to the point of having it come through a virgin birth, which we're going to talk about next Sunday, by the way. Now, 30 years later, Jesus has finally stepped forward onto the scene, begun to perform miraculous deeds, deeds so powerful that even demons proclaim him as the Messiah. And how does Jesus respond to all of this? Keep reading. Jesus says, be quiet. Come out of him. Wait, what? Are you kidding me? Jesus is publicly and supernaturally being recognized as the Messiah, and he shuts it down? Why? And it isn't as though Jesus just did this once. He did it many times. Mark chapter 1, a little bit later, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. He's got a huge crowd. What a great opportunity. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But look at this. But he would not let the demons speak. Why? Because they knew who he was. What did you mean? What's going on here? If they knew who he was, let him speak. This would be great. I mean, I don't know about you, but a demon shouting, you're the Messiah, that's a pretty strong testimony to me if I'm in the crowd that day. So why doesn't Jesus let them proclaim who he was? Why does Jesus stop them? This used to bother me. So I got thinking, I thought, okay, well, well, maybe, possibly, maybe it's because Jesus didn't want demons to be his spokespeople. But that could be the reason, possibly. But check out this conversation Jesus had with his personally hand-picked disciples. Mark chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So they're walking up to the northeast there of Israel, and, and they're heading around Caesarea Philippi, and as they're walking, they're talking, and on the way, he asks them, so tell me, gang, who do people say that I am? 
And they responded by saying, well, here, here's what's out there right now, Jesus. This is the scuttlebutt out there. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some think that you're John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. Others say you're Elijah, the prophet Elijah, who's been raised. Some say, well, you're just one of the prophets. Jesus said, well, that's interesting. Who do you say that I am? You've told me what everyone else out there says. Who do you say that I am? Peter steps forward. He was often the spokesperson for the other disciples. Peter says, you are the Messiah. It'd been a while now that they had been traveling together with Jesus. They'd heard him teach. They'd seen him do miraculous deeds. And they were now convinced, you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, that's right, Peter. Now let's tell the world. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus responds by warning them not to tell anyone about him. What? Why? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the three tightest, closest apostles that he had, and he, went, they, he took them up to the top of a mountain where something supernatural happens. Jesus appears gleaming white as Moses and Elijah supernaturally appear beside him. It's an incredible display. And listen to how Mark records it. He says, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is the voice of God the Father. And the voice says, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. And then it says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders. Look what he ordered them. He gave them orders not to tell anyone what they have seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Do you see what I'm talking about? Do you see why I found this annoying and confusing? What is going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? We're going to spend our next few minutes together digging into this mystery. And through our digging, we're going to uncover a powerful truth about what God knows about our lives. Okay, let's go back to that foundational Christmas passage from Luke. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping over, watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, hey, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. What's the good news? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He is the Messiah. So what exactly does the word Messiah mean? Well, Messiah is another word for Savior. We just saw it in that passage. But as your outline says, a Messiah is someone who meets you in your time of crisis and rescues you at your point of need. That's what a Messiah is. A Messiah is someone who meets you in your time of crisis and rescues you at your point of need. A company that was once tanking and about to shut down is now soaring and regularly turning a profit. When asked what happened, the chairman of the board was quick to answer. He said, Susan happened. That's what happened. She was our Messiah. She is a strong, bold, and strategic thinking CEO. She met us at our time of crisis and rescued us at our point of need. The papers were filled with the story of the events surrounding regional flight 237. It was a small turboprop plane with 20 passengers on board. It left the airport for about an hour and a half, two-hour flight. 
But one hour into the trip, the lone pilot suffered a heart attack. The passengers began to panic as the plane jostled in the air and began to dive. Suddenly, Mike Johnson, a businessman on the flight, ran from his seat at the back of the plane, ran to the front, grabbed hold of the controls and did his best and landed the plane on the closest airstrip. The papers began to refer to him as Messiah Mike. Messiahs are incredible, aren't they? They meet you in your time of crisis and they rescue you at your point of need. But what happens if you don't realize you have a need? Or what if what you think you need is not what you truly need? What if that floundering company thought that they just needed a new logo instead of a new leader? What if, what if those passengers thought they just needed fresh peanuts instead of a fresh pilot? What if what you think you need isn't what you truly need? Well, when something like that happens, you have a misguided view of what your Messiah should look like, and you will have a misguided view of what your Messiah should be doing. And that was precisely the situation that Jesus faced in first century Israel when he began his public ministry. Jesus came as their Messiah, absolutely. He came to meet them in their time of crisis and rescue them at their point of need. But what they thought they needed and what they truly needed were two completely different things. So what they were expecting the Messiah to do and what the Messiah actually did were two completely different things. So when it came to the Messiah, you ask, well, what were the people in first century Israel, what were they expecting? They were expecting a political revolutionary. That's what they were expecting. You see, the Jewish prophets had been telling Israel for centuries that God was sending the Messiah, someone who would come and rescue them. So the people made an assumption. They assumed that this promised Messiah would be a political and military figure. So in their minds, the Messiah would be a man who would rise up from the masses and lead the people to victory, military victory. The Messiah would destroy Israel's enemies, Rome, and would restore Israel to its former glory on the world stage. That's what they were expecting from their Messiah, but that's not what they got from their Messiah. How do you feel when you don't get what you expected to get. I can still remember it like it happened yesterday. I was five years old. We lived in Calgary, Alberta at this time. It was Christmas morning. Now you need to know that I had asked for a bulldozer for Christmas. That's what I asked for. I dropped every hint I could imagine as a little kid. I wanted a toy bulldozer. I wrote to Santa I wanted a toy bulldozer. I told my mom I wanted a toy bulldozer. I told my dad I wanted a toy bulldozer. I told the neighbors I wanted a toy bulldozer. Everything I could talk about, I talk about I want a toy bulldozer. And so I went to bed that night hoping that I would wake up to a toy bulldozer. I hardly slept at all, but I can still remember as though it's just happened, running down the stairs. I get up early. I'm talking like 4 a.m. I get up early. I ran down the stairs. I spun around the corner at the bottom of the stairs at the banister. I looked at the Christmas tree there in our family room, and there under the tree was a giant bulldozer. And I never felt such disappointment in my life up until then. 
except at that moment I felt my heart sank. Oh no. Because it was at that moment I realized that I asked for a bulldozer, but what I meant to ask for it was a greater. <laughs> I said bulldozer, but I was thinking greater. I tell you, I ruined that Christmas. I've never really recovered. <laughs> Folks, this is key. When you read the Christmas story, you need to realize that when you hear the word Messiah, you are thinking something very different from what they were thinking when they heard the word Messiah 2,000 years ago. You're thinking the Messiah is someone who dies on their behalf. They were thinking the Messiah is someone who kills on their behalf. Do you see the difference? They were thinking a political and military leader riding to their political and military rescue. That's what the shepherds were thinking. When the angel said, I've got great news that will bring great joy to all the people. A Messiah has been born. Yes, finally, someone to rise up and stomp on these dirty Romans and get them out of our land. Yes, that's what the shepherds were thinking. That's what the wise men were thinking. That's what Joseph and Mary were thinking. That's certainly what King Herod was thinking. So how was everyone prepared to respond to this Messiah? Well, the Jews were prepared to rally around him and raise him up. The Jews were, they were ready to rally around the Messiah and raise him up. The Jewish people were prepared to put the Messiah on their shoulders and celebrate him as their new leader. That's why King Herod tried to kill the Messiah back in Bethlehem as a baby. Herod saw this Messiah as a political and military rival to his throne. So he tried to stomp this Messiah out before he could even grow. The Jewish people were prepared to place the Messiah at the front of their movement and follow him into battle and overthrow the Romans, their political oppressors. So the Jews were prepared to rally around him and raise him up, but the Romans, the Romans were prepared to circle around him and stomp him down. You see, the Romans were in power because the Romans were brutal. They had zero tolerance for political disagreement. They crucified thousands upon thousands of people. Their boots were quick to stomp upon the first sign of any revolutionary spark. And the Romans crushed everyone who even hinted at opposing them. In fact, there's, there's a Roman historical documentation about there being miles, miles of a road with people on crosses dying, crucified. Miles of people hanging, crucified in a rebellion. How was everyone prepared to respond to the Messiah? The Jews were prepared to rally around him and raise him up. The Romans were prepared to circle around him and stomp him down. So are you starting to fit the pieces together? Are you beginning to see why Jesus did what he did? Are you beginning to understand why Jesus initially did his best to minimize the talk of him being the Messiah? Jesus knew that the moment he publicly declared, I am the Messiah, he would set off a chain of events that would bring a death sentence down upon him. Jesus knew that the Jews would try to crown him and the Romans would try to kill him. And that's why Jesus didn't encourage public talk of his messianic role until the time for his death was right. 
So then, for most of his ministry, Jesus lived in the middle of an ongoing tension. For most of his ministry, Jesus walked a very fine line. Jesus walked the fine line of demonstrating his messianic power without detonating the messianic politics. That's the fine line he had to walk. Yes, he demonstrated his power through miraculous deeds and through teaching, some teaching more subtle than others. He did all that so that the disciples could say, yes, we finally see it, you're the Messiah. He said, no, don't tell anyone. Because he had to walk the fine line between demonstrating his messianic power without detonating the messianic politics. So he waited until his ministry had accomplished what it needed to accomplish. He waited until he had taught and imparted everything he needed to teach and impart. Then, and only then, did he publicly declare and accept the messianic title. He knew what we needed, and he was determined to rescue us at our point of need. So what is our point of need? Where do we need to be rescued? What is our greatest need? In his book, Loving God, Charles Colson described an encounter at a prison in the southern United States. An encounter between a prison chaplain known as Pastor Randy and a state psychiatrist who was working in that prison. Now, Pastor Randy was working on his notes, preparing to, to give a presentation at, at that a gathering at the prison, when the psychiatrist, who was a friend of his, engaged him in a conversation. Soon, the frustrated doctor was describing his reality to the visiting pastor. And the psychiatrist's transparent observation still stands as one of the most profound statements I have ever read. Here's what the psychiatrist said. I'll tell you, Reverend, I can cure somebody's madness, but I can't do anything about his badness. Psychiatry, properly administered, can turn a, a schizophrenic bank robber into a mentally healthy bank robber. A good teacher can turn an illiterate criminal into an educated criminal, but they're still bank robbers and they're still criminals. I can cure somebody's madness, but I can't do anything about his badness. In that one sentence, that good doctor had come face to face with our greatest problem, the problem of evil within us, the problem of sin. What's our point of need? What's our greatest problem? Sin. Sin is our greatest problem. Defeating the power of sin is our crisis. Sin is our point of need. Author Max Lucado put it well in a quote that I've included on your outline today. He said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a savior, a messiah. Have you correctly acknowledged the greatest need in your life? We are created by God. As we learned in our last series, that means we are owned by God. You and I have rebelled against God. 
That's called sin. And the Bible says the wages that sin pays is death. We're waiting to be judged by the holy and righteous God, the one who created us, the one who owns us. And our judgment will result in eternal death. The wages that sin pays is death, eternal separation from God. And here's the sad, tragic news. There is absolutely nothing we can do about it. Nothing. There's nothing. It's like falling from an airplane without a parachute. There is nothing you can do to stop what's about to happen. You are helpless. You are a victim of the elements around you. That's how it is with us in sin. We have sinned. We are, the wages that our sin pays us is death, and there is nothing we can do about it. We are stuck. We are falling, waiting for the final impact. There's nothing, absolutely nothing in, on your own power you can do to change your fate. You need someone to meet you in your time of crisis and rescue you at your point of need. You need a Messiah. And that brings us to the reason for Christmas. That brings us to today's big idea where we sum up the teaching in one simple sentence. Here's today's big idea. Jesus is God's answer to your greatest need. Jesus is God's answer to your greatest need, to my greatest need. God knows your greatest need, and Jesus is God's answer to your greatest need. We've been separated from God by our sin, and there's nothing we could do. So Jesus came to pay a debt we could never pay. He came to do what we could never do, to take away our sin, to pay the debt. The wages that sin pays is death. But the rest of that verse says this, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, our God. God knows our greatest need, and Jesus is God's answer to our greatest need. You are loved by God with the purest love imaginable. Your moral debt has been paid through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. And as you sit here today, you are being offered the gift of forgiveness and cleansing. Jesus is God's answer to your greatest need. So only one issue remains. Have you accepted or have you rejected God's gift? You're sitting there and you say, Darren, how, how do I know if I've accepted it or not? Well, if you don't know if you've accepted it, that means you haven't accepted it. If you don't know if you've accepted it, that's a sure sign that you haven't. So why not decide to accept it? Why not decide to make Jesus your Messiah right now? Let's bow our heads together, please, as we're about to conclude the service with a song.